Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. All right, here we go, everybody. Welcome in. It's David Summers hosting another studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the story of wrestling in America as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. Now, we step back into the ring and back into time as we go into the Great Smoky Mountains with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. What's up, my man, Ron? Oh, geez, man. Uh, beautiful day here. Uh, enjoying it. I think spring is in the air. Uh, doesn't look like we're going to have any more cold temperatures or very few. Uh, saw the next 10 days forecast, so uh, we're doing good. All those trees, that those pear trees with the white blooms that were out there and uh, then the snow came, mm-hmm. well, those trees... Uh, a lot of them survived, man, and they got little green leaves already on them. So. Oh, nice! So oh. you know, so uh, uh, we're about to—I'm about to get to see my first spring here in the mountains. <laughs> That's nice, and I, I'm assuming there are a lot of wildflowers and that kind of thing. So maybe, maybe you get some additional colors to look at over the over the spring. Oh yeah, man. There's a lot of wildflowers, and they're already some of those boys are already up. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it, man. And uh, just kind of like I'm looking forward to the day show, man. Got so much going on, Dave. Well, Ron, I was just, you just busted an opportunity for me to say, have you ever run across a field of flowers? Okay, <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, I'll save that for another time. Hey, listen, you're, <laughs> you're exactly right. These studcasts have been really good lately, Ron. We've been buried with trying to thank the thousands of fans that are telling us every week how much they're enjoying them. So we're asking fans to please be patient if we haven't responded to you yet. I know, Stud, that you love being able to get back to fans on your social media sites. So, I mean, how's that coming? You got you got plenty to do there. Oh, yeah, man. God, that keeps you busy uh, by, my, by itself. That's a, that's a full-time job almost. And I, and I sure do enjoy getting uh, taking care of social media and uh, speaking with people and Studcast fans. You know, the, the Studcast fans are kind of the backbone of what, what I'm doing nowadays. Uh, it backs up the YouTube channel plus the streaming channel. And uh, those channels obviously are video oriented, but uh, this is the one program that's uh, just audio. And uh, wow, it, uh, it, 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 we provide a lot of information. And, uh, and uh, you know, basically those, audio, those video channels, oh, they're filled with Southeastern Continental and USA TV shows. Uh, gosh, they got the Gulf Coast and Southeastern Classic matches on them now. And the uh, stud stories are there. 
And there's other video specials on there as well. And now the Studcast themselves are on both of those channels as well. So uh, each Studcast uh, is is an, is an every week account, man. And, you know, basically, Dave, and my, what my life was like 44 years ago in the 1970s. And it's a great way to take fans on a very special ride back to the same week a long time ago, 44 years ago. And I, I'm basically reliving the history of my wrestling life. Uh, every one of these stud cats is, uh, is a journey back in time. And uh, so that's why this episode is called uh, In Way Over My Head. <laughs> because in March of 1977, <laughs> 1978, I'm, I'm, I mean, uh, that's what it felt like to me. I, <laughs> that I was in way over my head, man. All right. Well, we'll see. This weekly journey back 44 years ago had suddenly gotten very busy for you. Two territories, 500 miles apart. We're talking, we're talking from the coast all the way to Knoxville, and you're just turning 30 years old. So I've been thinking that you you might be jumping in way over your head. I've I've been thinking this already. So it sounds like a very appropriate name for this studcast, and so that's what you called it. So. Speaking of jumping in, way over your head. You don't seem to have a hard time dealing with it. Your Southeastern Rewind YouTube channel is rapidly growing since it started. And then also your new ClassicContinentalWrestling.com streaming channel has a really exciting future. And listen, you already have three of the stars of the sport, three-hour shows on there with Andre the Giant, Arn Anderson, and Mick Foley, Mankind, waiting in the wings to be released any day. Besides everything you now have on Southeastern Rewind's YouTube page, you also have on the streaming channel a 90-minute tremendous documentary of the very popular Wildcat Wendell Cooley's career. I think you also have another great documentary coming on the ClassicContinentalWrestling.com streaming channel soon. So uh, tell, tell me about that. Well, I definitely do, man. And uh, this one is only about a month away, man, before we put this one up. And it's going to be the worldwide premiere of the Tony Anthony Dirty White Boy and Dirty White Girl video documentary. Documentary, And uh, and it's got a special appearance in it with uh, Dr. Tom Pritchard. Uh, that's going to be in April. Hmm. And it's only going to be on the streaming site for 30 days. And then it's going to be released on Amazon. Wow. So it's a, it's a big one, uh, really, really a professionally done one. Uh, got a lot of matches, a lot of interviews. Uh, the story of uh, Tony Anthony, the dirty white boy. So, uh, wow. you know, we got a lot of stuff that's going to be happening, that's for sure. All right, as if that weren't enough. You also told me you were working on another project for the ClassicContinentalWrestling.com streaming channel. You want to you wanna tell us about that idea today? Well, you know, I wasn't I wasn't really planning on it, but but gosh, I'm really excited about this one, Dave. Uh, uh, you know, that's that's I guess that's why these studcasts are so perfect for this type of stuff. You know, it gives me opportunity to take a few minutes and uh, yeah. So so I say, why not today? Yeah. So I'm in the process of creating something I believe has never been done before, and I'm going to soon release on the streaming channel. Chapter one of my first wrestling book. I've never written a book about wrestling. Uh, you know, I've got Brutus out there. I've got a lion story, but I'm about to release uh, a chapter at a time. I'm going to my first wrestling book, and it's going to be about the history of American professional wrestling. And, uh, and I'm going to write this book uh, 
uh, as seen through the eyes and the lives. My Welch family uh, history, man. Wow. The oldest and largest professional wrestling family on the planet. And uh, my, my family has been a part of American professional wrestling for more than 100 years. And I don't know anybody more qualified to talk about it, I guess, than a, than a Welch. <laughs> No. Well, there you go. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, so I feel like, uh, you know, uh, this is something, uh, Brutus, I knew nothing about uh, a lion uh, and, uh, and that type of stuff. Uh, not much about the, the Smoky Mountains themselves, but uh, wrestling, that's another thing. And so this book is going to begin in the 1800s when pro wrestling started in Europe. And uh, then it's going to come to America. And I'm going to tell the story of the actual history of professional wrestling. But at the same time, Dave, I'm going to integrate my family's personal experiences into it as each member of the family became involved in the sport. Mm -hmm. So my grandfather, Roy, is going to be the first to become a part of the story. And that'll be in the early 1900s. And the last uh, will be four generations. That's going to be my son, Chad, and Jimmy Golden's son, Bobby, who have both wrestled in the 2000s. So every chapter of this historic story will appear first on Continental, ClassicContinentalWrestling.com, the streaming channel. And uh, that's going to allow me to do something never done before. The book will become not just audio, but it's going to become visual because I'll be able to talk about the shooters, for instance, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, show photos of them. And for the first time ever, uh, as uh, as we progress through this book, we're going to have we'll be able to show actual video matches of some of the stars that that are in the book in action. Wow. Okay. Th I mean, that sounds pretty groundbreaking to me, Stud. So let me see if I I got this right. Your family's actual experiences intertwined with the history of American professional wrestling in not only book form, but with photos and even videos of some historic stars whenever that's available. That's pretty cool right there. Yeah, Chase, man, uh, they, I think you got it, man. You know, uh, like I said, there's never been a book like that uh, in history that I'm aware of. And uh, so we're going to uh, premiere every chapter on ClassicContinentalWrestling.com as the book is being written. I mean, as I finish a chapter, I'm going to put it on the streaming site. And uh, so it's it's going to it's going to be something unusual. So when do you when are you going to do like chapter one? When does that come out? Well, I've been working on it already, man, and and I hope to have uh, the first chapter ready by April. So uh, oh, I'm extremely excited about it, man. Uh, this is a real big project. I've never I've never jumped on one like this one. Right. But uh, I think uh, this one is going to be really great, and eventually. Uh, people will be able to see this and hear it before it ever comes out as a book. And then <laughs> they want the book, they can buy the book as well. All right. So are these like fireside chats? <laughs> That's kind of, hey, I, I was going to say something about that. You uh -huh. know, I, mean, uh, I think the studcaster in a way, like the old yeah. fireside chats yeah. with the old presidents back in the yeah. day. Uh -huh. Now I'm not that old. You know, right. I, I better well, say, I don't, I, I maybe have a little age on me, but I don't remember any fireside chats. Yeah. But you, but, uh, but you might have yeah. a, you might have a sweater wrapped around your shoulders and maybe smoking a pipe. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't, yeah, I don't I, know, man. Have, you, you never know with me. I, mean, I, I may do just that. That's not yeah, a bad idea. I haven't seen that side of the stud. All right. So listen, I had no idea you were even going to be adding 
something like this. But fans, the streaming channel is going to be the place for all the best old school wrestling action action from now on. You can subscribe today at ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. Only $4.99 a month, $39.99 per year. It's going to be absolutely amazing. So, Stud, speaking of amazing, let's find out just how much you are in over your head in today's Studcast. So where are we riding? Where do we go? Well, yeah, I am kind of in over my head, man. So, uh, you know, uh, we're going to obviously be riding into two territories again today, like we did the last couple of stud casts. And uh, the last stud cast, uh, so people uh, can uh, kind of acclimate themselves again, Bob Armstrong. And the last one was one of the southeastern Gulf Coast uh, assassins, uh, Roger Smith and I. We're all three returning from just wrestling in Dothan. Uh, to the, we're going to be returning. Uh, two days earlier, uh, we, uh, we're going to be uh, going back to Knoxville after being in Dothan for a couple of days. Uh, we got that 1,000-mile round trip mm-hmm. from there and back. And uh, we're going to be in the Knoxville Coliseum on March 12th. Uh, and then we were going to cover that event. Uh, we'll talk about the TV the day before that event the results of that card and the attendance. Then we're going to jump back down to Alabama, man, uh, five days later for the third live event, Southeastern Gulf Coast history. And we'll discuss the card there from March 17th, 1978, the TV that promoted that card, the results of that card and the attendance that night. And uh, this one's going to end with another great learning tree question, Dave. Uh, A a gentleman asked, uh, what was the relationship between Booker and owner when it came to decisions such as hiring or firing, mm-hmm. talent, pay guarantees, angles, title mm-hmm. changes, world title shots, or position on card placements. Hmm. All um, right, so, Ryan, it does sound like just what the name for this episode is, in way over your head. 1,000 miles in two different states and then back again. So I can't wait to hear how how you're going to handle this type of a schedule and how you're going to do it on any kind of a regular basis. <laughs> Thinking back on it, Dave, it was, it, you know, it was, it was quite a struggle, man. And, you know, and, and, and I might've dug myself in the hole with the two territories. I certainly had that thought quite a few times, but I was only 30 years old. Uh, the day I started that territory down there, <laughs> I was kind of a ball of fire, man. Uh, and because of this expansion of my Knoxville territory, it made me more of a ball of fire. I was just determined, man, I'm going to kick butt. We're going to make this happen. And uh, I was going to have to learn how to deal with it because I had to or fail. And then failure, it just wasn't in the cards, man. That wasn't going to happen. So I wasn't going to let that happen. So let's talk about what was on that Knoxville card in the Coliseum on Sunday afternoon, March 12, 1978. Uh, the Sunday before that, Ronnie Garvin had beaten Andre the Giant. Wow, that's a, what a feat, right? I mean, not many guys could, yeah. can, can say they ever beat the Giant. Yeah. You know? and, I, and I forgot to mention last week that not only did he do a lot of other things to him, he actually slammed the Giant in this match, too. Whoa. Uh, along with everything else he did to him. 
<laughs> so uh, remember, uh, you know, uh, this so fans can acclimate themselves here. Garvin wasn't finished after he beat the Giant. He went out, uh, and there was poor Royley standing on the floor watching this match with a broken arm and a cast. And uh, so Garvin beats the Giant, and he just rolls out on the floor, and he catches Royley off guard, and he picks Royley up, slams him on the concrete, starts stomping his arm and, <laughs> and his cast. Breaks his cast into pieces, and uh, it hadn't been for Joe Duke. I don't know if Roy had ever been able to use that arm again. Wow. Joe Duke came down and got Ronnie Garvin off of him, and uh, Joe Duke and uh, Ronnie Garvin's match is going to be just one of them in this great seven-match card that we're going to be talking about uh, for the day. So the opening match was newcomer Rip Smith uh, versus the sometimes occasional brother of Sputnik Munro. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rocket Monroe, and I say that occasionally, brother, because mm -hmm. he wasn't a real brother. Mm -hmm. But occasionally, when Sputnik had a tag, he liked to have Rocket in there with him for mm -hmm. whatever reason. Mm -hmm. So the hangman, Roger Smith, one of the assassins in the southeastern Gulf Coast territory, he was he was in a match against Tony Charles, pretty tough opponent there. Jimmy Golden wrestled against Don Carson on that card. And in a special event from two weeks earlier where Gorgeous George Jr. was scheduled to wrestle Ricky Gibson and he failed to show up, they were booked against each other again. And the deal was in this one, this coming time, if Gigi didn't show up this time, he was going to lose his license to manage the stopper in the state of Tennessee. <laughs> right. He'd lose his livelihood, basically. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Stomper was his gig. You know, so the Southeastern Tag Belts had been held up in a match in Johnson City the week before between uh, Robert Fuller and the Tennessee Stud. They were the champions, and they were wrestling against Dennis Condry and Phil Hickerson, who was presented by Ron Wright. Boy, he really liked to hit him with that line. Uh, and this was the return match uh, to put the belts on one team or the other. They had been held up for almost two weeks, and uh, this was for the Southeastern Tag Championship. And the result of that match I mentioned earlier, the one with Garvin and the Giant, where Joe LaDuke saved Roy Lee from Garvin, it was now a face-to-face -face match between Ronnie Garvin and Joe LaDuke. And there were some special rules for this one, and this was a very unusual match. We didn't have many of these. It's a brass knucks match. So basically, that was taping your fist, and you could do anything you wanted to. Anything went in those type of matches. And then the main event was a result of the Sunday before, uh, when Gorgeous George Jr., without real reason or provocation, he came down to help Don Carson beat the Georgia Jawjacker. <laughs> and, uh, and the Jawjacker <laughs> returned. Uh, the next match, the very next match, was uh, the Stomper, and the jawjacker returned to the Gigi's interference, and he showed up down there in the ring for that match, and he ran Gigi off from ringside, which wasn't hard for Bob to run him, uh, to get him uh, to leave And uh, during that match. And, uh, and then he got in the ring, and uh, by golly, the jawjacker jacked the stomper's jaw, and uh, the Mongo got beat, man, which was a very unusual situation. So... Uh, the main event for this one is a Southeastern Championship match between the champion, the Mongolian Stomper, and the Georgia Jawjacker. Wow. That, I mean, that's a card. So two championship matches, a Brass Knucks match, and a gorgeous George Jr. loses his manager's license in Tennessee if he fails to show up. 
that's kind of some pretty good insurance right there, in my opinion. It had to be a really great TV the day before with a card like that. So how did you how did you open the TV show? Well, Les ran down the TV card as usual, man, and uh, then the cameras backed away from the close-up as we opened up every show. And uh, Ronnie Garvin was sitting with Les again for a very unusual second week in a row. We hardly ever did that. We put the same guy to open the show with Les. And uh, and behind the two of them, on the big photo, uh, the big still shot that was there across the set every every opening, was a photo of Roy Lee Welch. He was laying on the Coliseum floor. You could see pieces of his cast thrown across the floor. Uh, he was holding his arm, and Joe LaDuke had been there. He had already come to the ring to help him. He was standing over Roy, and he had a big bear hug on Ronnie Garvin. Uh, that was the still shot. And uh, so Garvin sitting there with Roy and he started things off, man. He he got a look at that shot behind him and uh, and he got really mad before Les even had a chance to say anything. <laughs> you know, he was already mad because of the huge photo he saw behind him. Mm-hmm. You know, so he screamed at Les and he demanded to know uh why he was invited out there again to start things off for the TV show. And then y'all put up a photo of me being bear hugged by Joe LaDuke. <laughs> and then he asked Les the perfect question. He says, where is the photo and video of me beating the biggest wrestler in the world, Andre the Giant? He's got a point there. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. He legitimate point. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It was a legitimately good question. Yeah. So, and and it really it stumped Les. I mean, you know, he, Les didn't have a good answer, man, and he hesitated. So Garvin just kind of took control again as Les stammered around. Well, yeah, you know. So Garvin asked, "You're not going to pop another surprise on me here like you did last week, are you, Thatcher?" Remember last week uh, he sat there and then they finally told him, uh, well, you're going to be wrestling Andre the Giant tomorrow. So basically Garvin's basically said, you guys set me up here, you know, kind of in a way. So Les asked, you know, so Garvin had made his point. So Les asked the director to show the video, you know. So then Garvin, I think, probably assumed that uh, it was going to show the match with him against the Giant. And instead, the director backed up the same video where Garvin was stopping Roy Lee's arm on the Coliseum floor. And uh, when Garvin saw that, he he was right in Les's face again. He goes, that's not the right video. He goes, where's my win over Andre the Giant, Thatcher? <laughs> no, so, so, you know, so Les at this point, he was clearly defensive, man. So he tried to get back in control by saying, you know, but, but well, because of what you did after that match with Andre, uh, you're going to have to meet Joe LaDuke tomorrow in a Brass Nucks match. Well, the studio crowd only had a small reaction compared to what they did in the week before when he was told he had to wrestle Andre the Giant the next day. And, you know, and as I said this in the last studcast, uh, this Garvin match was so fantastic. And him actually beating the Giant, you know, I said that uh, that match was, the ba- to me, it was kind of the beginning of Ronnie Garvin turning babyface. Like it or not, mm-hmm. I mean that mm-hmm. crowd mm-hmm. had a, they they gained a lot of respect for Ronnie Garvin in that thirty minute match with the Giant. Wow! So uh, Garvin's Garvin's pretty pissed now, 
and he jumps up from his seat and he bend down and, and, and bent over and left his face and he screamed, to, you know, if I just beat Andre the Giant by myself, why would I be afraid of a brass knucks match with Joe the Duke? <laughs> He's, <laughs> you know, and he said, I'm the greatest wrestler in the world now. Hello. Don't you understand that? <laughs> you know, he said, and he says, I'll tell you what, Les Thatcher, he says, I'll leave Joe LaDuke bloody and laying on the concrete like his little broken arm cowboy buddy, Roy Lee Welch. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do, you know, and, uh, and then he just left, left to sit, right? And there was a smattering of booze from the audience, you know, but oddly enough, man, you could pick out a few cheers. <laughs> All right. So you were not at that TV, but in Dothan, Alabama that day. So what did you think when you heard about the reaction from the crowd the next day when you got back to Knoxville? Well, R Rob told me about it. You know, I mean, obviously he was up in this in the uh, control booth with the director when then when this beginning of the show went down, and we had both watched the match with Andre and Garvin the Sunday before, and we had talked a lot about uh, what was going on inside in the Knoxville territory at that point. We talked about this issue, the one I talked about last week in the Studcast of having three top baby face, Bob Armstrong. Tony Charles and myself all leaving Knoxville over a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. And uh, how are we going to replace them? What's going to happen? Where, where, where are our baby faces, our big baby faces coming from? So this opening was our idea. You know, we had talked about it. We both saw that maybe Garvin was the answer to all this. And uh, so we wanted to give Garvin an opportunity to, have his say and and he had a whole he had a strong point he just beat the biggest wrestler in the world you know so uh <laughs> so it, you know uh and uh, so this opening was our idea and to see how garvin was uh, going to be accepted after the andre win wow. you know it was like kind of like the first step in making garvin a baby face mm -hmm. and and we decided rob and i we talked about it to to make it happen but do it in a most unusual way and not by usually when you switch a heel, it's a one night angle. And, and, and it's always done 99% of the time when one heel turns on another, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, and, uh, but maybe, you know, we talked maybe for the first time at ever in wrestling <laughs> and we, we were going to slowly and carefully over a period of weeks, take Ronnie Garvin from being a top heel to being a top baby face. Wow. I, I can see that. But I mean, when I think about it, I don't think I've ever seen a heel turn baby face other than some kind of altercation with another heel that kind of comes naturally. It seems like never the slowly over time way. So that's pretty cool. But what was next? Well, Joe LaDuke, uh, he was next, uh, and uh, he hit the studio, man, for the first live match. Ronnie had had his say. He had left the set, and uh, Joe came in the studio, and while wow, he was still a great babyface, man, and he was really over. And uh, So uh, in his match, he wrestled two guys, just like he always did in matches, and uh, he, he bear-hugged the life out of both of them, man, and they, uh, they, they couldn't either one of them get up. And, uh, 
And then he went to the set with Les, and uh, Garvin showed up in Studio B. And uh, fans always loved Children Duke, man, and they showed it during his interview. They responded to Joe as they always had. And a small number of fans cheered Garvin, but he was still a bona fide hot heel, man. Uh, you know, uh, he was still all heel, basically. But uh, a little smattering of fans, it was the beginning of something big in Southeastern. Wow. All right. So, so Ron Wright, <laughs> he's next, man. He, You know, Ron was ex, uh, and he he had on a tuxedo. <laughs> he had changed his gimmick entirely, man. <laughs> he came out on the tuxedo, and he presented his great tag team, Dennis Condry and Phil Hickerson, in the second TV match, first time they'd ever been on TV. These guys were a very good team. By golly, they were great. And it wasn't going to take long for them to get over. And Ron Wright escorted a man to the set after they got themselves their first big win. And uh, Les played a short interview with Rob and I that had been cut in the local gym on Wednesday, three days earlier. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're wrestling these guys. And as I said earlier, I was in Dothan on on that Saturday. And uh, we both... uh, Talked about uh, regaining, we talked in this interview about regaining the held up belts from the match in Johnson City, Tennessee, about uh, 10 days earlier. So Wright did his usual interview. These boys didn't do any talking. and uh, They didn't have to. (laughs) Ron Wright didn't want them to. You know, and he did his usual interview. He promised his beloved team, that's what he called them, was going to prove their greatness tomorrow. He goes, uh, and we're going to give my good old Tennessee dog whooping. <laughs> and, uh, and those boys got big grins on their faces. They hadn't heard much of Ron Wright uh-huh. and the Tennessee dog whooping, but uh, yeah. they were going to hear a lot of it in the future. <laughs> All right, I'll tell you what, that's a good spot for the break. Our personality profile with the Mongolian Stomper and gorgeous George Jr. is going to be happening next and as we take the break, and we'll come right back, but while we're doing that, check out ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. It's streaming everything that you can see on YouTube's Southeastern Rewind and so much more. ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. All right, hang in there. We'll be right back with this studcast in a moment. ClassicContinentalWrestling.com is where the stud lives. Everything on YouTube Southeastern Rewind is moving to the streaming channel. ClassicContinentalWrestling.com every Monday. New Gulf Coast Classic matches. Every Tuesday, new stud stories. Every Wednesday, new stud cast. Every Thursday, new Continental TV show. Every Friday, new Gulf Coast matches. Every Sunday, new Southeastern Classic matches. Plus specials of all kinds. ClassicContinentalWrestling.com only $4.99 per month or $39.99 per year. All right, everybody, welcome back in. It's another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. I'm David Summers. All right, so stud, let's talk personality profile. Lay it out for us. Okay. All right. The Mongolian Stomper was on this one with his manager, Gorgeous George Jr. And uh, obviously, Gorgeous George sitting down. Les sits in the chair, the big chairs, and, uh, and uh, Stomper's doing his thing with his big truck shock uh, behind him, uh, cranking away. And uh, Gigi starts out, man, complaining about Commissioner Don Curtis and how Don Curtis had ratted him out to the Tennessee Athletic Commission 
because he was sick two weeks earlier and couldn't wrestle in a match against poor little Ricky Gibson, he called him. He said, uh, you know, and he says, now the athletic commission's threatening to take away my manager's license if, if I don't show up tomorrow, you know, and he said that, uh, that that only ensured Ricky Gibson was going to get hurt because Don Curtis and the athletic commission had just pushed things too far now. You know, they, they, they'd insulted him and, uh, that like he was yellow and that he was scared to be there. And, uh, so, uh, you know, and he says, you know, I, I'm basically, he said, I'm really mad now, you know, and, and I'm going to whip Ricky Gibson tomorrow. He said, <laughs> like my father used to do to so many top professional wrestlers in his life, <laughs> you know, he, 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 he referred back to his father, mm-hmm. gorgeous George, the original yeah. and says tomorrow, basically I'm going to be a gorgeous George. So, uh, and then he switched to his champion and he, and he said that his stomper had been uh, neglected lately as the monster that he really was. And that in the Southeastern title match the next day, since it was a no DQ match, his stomper, would pull the mask from the Georgia jawjackers head, prove to everybody that he was really Bob Armstrong underneath that mask, and then and then send that Georgia cracker out of Southeastern home for good because Don Curtis had promised that was what's going to happen. And uh, you know, pretty good profile, man, and uh, and he had some good points. Uh, so. Uh, so uh, we'll go back to the next match after the profile was over and. Uh, uh, Rip Smith, the youngster that had just come in, turned out to be a tremendous talent man. had a great future. Uh, Rip Smith was a star of the future, like I said, and he got his first TV win uh, in the third match that day since he had arrived in Southeastern. And then he and Ricky Gibson uh, joined Les at the set, and Gigi uh, in Studio B with the Stomper answered Gibson's remarks. Gibson said, basically, you know, uh, I've been waiting <laughs> for a lot longer than two weeks to get my hands on gorgeous George Jr. And uh, I'm going to be able to do it tomorrow. And if he doesn't show up, <laughs> uh, he's finished in the state of Tennessee. He loses his license. <laughs> so, uh, and Rip Smith was facing another star, uh, you know, another really great veteran. Rocket Monroe was a guy who'd been around a long time. And uh, Rip was a great kid, man. What a humble kid he was. And he showed his humility, you know, and uh, he basically just said to Les, you know, I, I'm really I'm honored. He goes, I might, I'm honored to be wrestling such a big name star as Rocket Monroe. Because, you know, I'm just I'm just happy to be in the match. So uh, we'll talk about the results of that match a little bit later here. So anyway, the Mongolian Stomper uh, closed out the live matches for that show. And uh, he did it, as always, with another boot to his opponent's face. And then... Uh, Gorgeous George uh, and his stomper, they joined Les at the set, and they watched a one-minute video promo from the Georgia Jawjacker, promising to win the Southeastern Championship the next afternoon. Hmm. And it was a video because the Jawjacker, Bob Armstrong, was 500 miles away from Knoxville and Dothan, Alabama, <laughs> doing a live TV show there while this show was being done. <laughs> Obviously, somebody had to be on their toes with that video to get that transported 500 miles. I bet one of you guys that was a that was a car detail, <laughs> right? It's one of those. Uh, let's do it. Let's do it early before. Yeah, while he's still here. In yeah, town, yeah. That's gotcha. 
All right, another great TV right there. So what was the result? Let's hear the results for the Knoxville March 12, 1978 card, and how'd you do on attendance? Well, uh, you know, we talked about Rip Smith and him being a really humble kid, and uh, wow, what a great match he had with Rocket Monroe. And Rip Smith probably got the biggest win of his career so far at that point. Uh, Tony Charles, uh, he had no problem uh, working the hangman over, man. I tell you, Tony was at the top of his game. Uh, Jimmy Golden and Don Carson, uh, they wrestled each other to a 30-minute time limit draw. Another great match. You never saw Jimmy wrestle Carson very often. Ricky Gibson, he beat Gorgeous George Jr. Gorgeous George showed up. But not the real Gorgeous George. Gorgeous George Jr. showed up. And uh, so uh, Ricky Gibson got himself a win. The Southeastern Tag Belts were held up again in this match that uh, we had that day. And another wild match between uh, Tennessee Stud and Robert Fuller against Dennis Condry and Phil Hickerson. Presented by Ron Wright. You know, and and Wright got involved, obviously, <laughs> like he had, he wanted to, and had to just about every match. Mm-hmm. And uh, his team actually got a three count, but a second referee was back there watching it, and he came down the ring and uh, reversed the decision, and they took the belts back from the from Hickerson and Condry, and uh, you know, so uh, they're going to have to be. Uh, there's going to be a tournament the next week. Four of those belts, biggest tag team tournament probably in the history of Southeastern. The Brass Nooks match uh, between Garvin and LeDuc was a bloodbath, man. And uh, they fought not just all over the ring, but they fought uh, by the time it was over uh, back to the curtain at the rear of the Coliseum. And Mm. they just Mm. couldn't pull them apart. Nobody wanted to get too close because those two guys are, were not the type of guys you wanted to go pull them, jerking them around. <laughs> You're going to get it yourself. So Gordon George Jr., uh, he had made a good claim that his stomper was going to remove the jawjacker's mask. And, uh, and with his help in that match, that's exactly what happened. Uh, and then, uh, as Don Curtis had promised, uh, Bob Armstrong was the guy under the mask, and uh, that was the end of him in southeastern Knoxville. Uh, he was gone for at least a year. So the crowd on this one, man, was uh, 5,200. And they were crazy fans. I mean, <laughs> wow. They they really enjoyed themselves uh, uh, until the last match. I mean, obviously, they weren't happy to see yeah. Bob Armstrong unmasked. But uh, 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 that type of thing happens every once in a while. All right. That's cool. All right. So where to now? I got a feeling maybe headed south. Oh, yeah. We're, we're headed 500 miles south, man, Dothan, Alabama. And uh, this is going to be the third southeastern Gulf Coast car. It's on uh, Friday night, March 17, 1978. Uh, the local hero, the wrestling pro, Leon Baxter, mm-hmm. was uh, opening up the car, wrestling against Jim White. Burhead Jones was uh, wrestling against Doug Gilbert. Mike Stallings was up against Eddie Mansfield. Uh, I wrestled the five foot five inch Greg Peterson, uh, who was a Gulf, St- Gulf Coast star, man, for many, many years from Bonifay, which is only about 30 miles outside of Dothan. I think it's somewhere around that 30 miles, probably from Dothan. Uh, big star there, uh, but uh, very short, very short competitor. Uh, next two matches were return matches. Uh, Robert Gibson and Charlie Cook met the assassins managed by Rip Tyler. 
And the main event was the same two guys as the finals of the Gulf Coast Championship match from the Friday before. This was a rematch for the Gulf Coast Championship belt again mm. with Bob Armstrong, who had won the week before against David Schultz in the finals. Wow. Okay, six matches and a lot of pretty big names. But how does that – I mean, what what was happening in southeastern Gulf Coast? How does that compare to Knoxville and, and, and what's the difference? Why? Well, that's a good question, Dave. Uh, you know, actually, there's a world of difference between the two territories at this point. You know, Knoxville was full of great wrestlers. Uh, but even more important, they were well-known wrestlers to the Knoxville crowd, which makes a, a huge difference. Alabama was just the opposite. Uh, almost every wrestler was new to all those people. And it was going to take at least three months for that to change. Uh, wrestling basically was a sport of familiarity. I mean, you didn't wear helmets and uniforms like you did uh, as a football player. <laughs> well, fans got to see your face and your body. But in wrestling, they also had to know your personality. They got to do, they'd get so much closer to the athlete than they did in other sports because you made these interviews and you were there and you talked to people. Yeah. So they got to know your personality. Uh, they had to get to know your wrestling style. They had to figure out where you, how good you were going to be at talking on television and the interviews you made. And uh, are you a, be a baby face or a heel? I mean, there were so many questions that had to be answered before fans uh, down there in Alabama really began to cheer or boo for, for a particular wrestler. So we were only three weeks in. I mean, she's that's that's that it, it's just, it's just so it's in there. It's like a baby in its infancy. I mean, it, it's it was it was a real struggle getting off the ground. Mm -hmm. So they had seen this new group of wrestlers maybe at this point six times, and that's if every one of those wrestlers had to wrestle on TV, had been able to wrestle on TV. But you can't do that with a one-hour show. You can only show basically four matches you can show four different talents so it's going to take time for them even to see guys on tv well enough to know it. so time man was what was necessary even with great wrestlers fans had to become familiar with them and if you didn't have great talent uh with six months of tvs you might you know let's say you didn't do it in three months like the 90 days you took six months if you didn't have good talent you might never make it happen you might be out of business before you get to the six-month mark. Yeah. So good attitude and enthusiasm was the key to having a great crew. And uh, no matter how small the crowd was and whether they were into the matches or not, you wrestled just as hard for those people as you would have a Coliseum in Knoxville full of people. And, uh, and you prepared your wrestlers in advance for hard times. You prepared them for that thought process that uh, no matter how quiet it is, uh, no matter how small the crowd is, uh, even if somebody's jeering out there in the audience, you let nothing distract you from making them believe and making fans out of them. So what was happening in Alabama, it didn't compare in any way to what was happening in Knoxville. Uh, a lot of reasons for that. And one is because Knoxville fans had grown up with their stars. They'd seen these guys for four years. 
you know? So they were very familiar with everybody. Mm -hmm. So time was the only thing really different between the two territories. And that's why there was such a difference. Knoxville was selling out everywhere. And Alabama was going to be doing the same things four years later. <laughs> Once they had four years of seeing these guys, they're going to sell out too, just like yeah. Knoxville. So time, patience, and, and the will uh, as the owner of a company to never give up. And that's how wrestling companies were built, man, into great ones. That's, that's really well said. To me, I mean, you, you're treating that audience like a fine wine. You, the, the, the audience has to mature around, uh, around the wine. So around the, the entertainment that you've got. So that's pretty, that's pretty cool. How, how they're at one level in Knoxville and another level, it's a new wine in Dothan. So, all right, that's cool. So tell us about the Gulf coast TV Saturday, March 11th of 78 that publicized this particular card. Okay, for the first time ever in that part of the country, we had someone from the TV station shoot live matches from the arena the night before the TV. It had never been done. And uh, it was a key to building Knoxville. And uh, so, you know, and then Bob Armstrong, we, we've taped Bob Armstrong winning the Gulf Coast Championship. And it, obviously the, the tape showed a much smaller crowd than the Knoxville video showed. But, uh, you know, it, it didn't matter because uh, Bob watched the win and he complimented the fans and, and, and where they lived and how he enjoyed that part of the country. Uh, he had a Bob had a great way with people and he had a great way with interviews and he sold himself in that interview. You know, I'm your champion and I'm proud of it. And, uh, and I'm going to do my best to hang on to this. And, uh, and they, uh, you could see the fans in the stands and the, and the bleachers there at TV, uh, getting into it. And, uh, and, this was their town and it was their TV show. And just like Knoxville, these videos that were going to be shown every week were going to fill their buildings, man, someday and someday, very soon, actually. So, so I'd done an interview on the first TV show uh, the week before, or I guess at this point, it's to two weeks before, saying I never wrestled on TV because fans in the studios were all just freeloaders and nobody there bought a ticket. And, uh, and if they were going to see somebody with my talent, they had to put their money down to see a star, you know, and, uh, and it was a great gimmick for a heel. Uh, fans hated my arrogance and, and, you know, and I was beginning <laughs> to enjoy healing again. I hadn't healed in three years and I was loving the fact they hated me. You know, I wanted them to hate me worse. The more they hated me, the better things were going to be. So I was wrestling one of the most popular local wrestlers ever in that part of the country, Greg Peterson. And, you know, and he was extremely short, a very, very short dude, you know. And, uh, and a Gulf Coast, uh, uh, you know, Gulf Coast TV match uh, from many years ago uh, is on right now on, on YouTube. And it's also on the streaming channel, uh, ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. Mm -hmm. And if you'd like to see that match and see what uh, Greg Peterson looked like, 
you can see that now. And that match was probably from the early 1970s. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, he's still in good shape and he's still young at this point in 1978. So this was 1978 and a song was out that was very popular at the time. <laughs> and, and I would have him play it. I know, where, I know where yeah. you're going with this. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I'd have them play that song right now, but in today's video world, Dave, you can't play music anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you know that it's it's not like the old days. Uh, so, so Dave, uh, because we can't play it, right? Uh, I'm going to do what I did that day on TV in March of 1978. Oh, here we go. <laughs> I'd already I had already refused to wrestle on TV, mm-hmm. but I came out for an interview to talk about my opponent. For the following Friday night, little five foot five inch Greg Peterson, <laughs> and uh, and I had my say, and I ended the interview by telling Charlie Platt, the TV commentator, a story, mm-hmm. and and I told him this story about how I was six feet nine inches tall, and I felt like I sat on a huge throne in life. I was so much taller than everybody else, <laughs> and and I looked down on them because I was tall. Uh-huh. You know? And then I always felt special, especially when I look at all those tiny people over there in the bleachers. And I pointed over there uh-huh. and I said, and that includes you too, Charlie Platt, <laughs> you know. And then I said, so before I go, I have a little song that I think is very appropriate for this match. And, and I want to sing to Greg Peterson and all those freeloaders over there on the bleachers and you, Charlie Platt, but mostly I want to sing this to all those people out there watching me on TV. Short people got no reason. Short people got no reason. Short people got no reason to live. They got little hands and little eyes, and they walk around telling great big lies. They got Little noses and tiny little teeth. They wear platform shoes on their dirty little feet. And that's when I left the set. Oh, come on. Did you did you really do that, Ron? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, uh, the one thing that was going to make that territory get up and go was red hot heat on the heels. And as, as we got further along in this territory day, Mm-hmm. It was going to become the most dangerous I ever knew anywhere in the world. <laughs> there was going to be more riots in the first six months in southeastern Gulf Coast than in the first five years in Knoxville. <laughs> All right. So I love these studcasts. I can't wait to hear some of these stories. So what were the, let's talk results and attendance. Friday, March 17th, 1978, southeastern Gulf Coast territory how did you guys do on that uh, the wrestling pro uh, beat jim white wrestling pro was a great wrestler as a matter of fact oh yeah know? yeah and it wasn't his first win and it wouldn't be his last uh, burhead jones beat doug gilbert uh, mike stallings won over eddie mansfield they had a great match both of those guys were young and uh, both of them were scratchers and diggers mm-hmm. and uh, they were trying to build a territory yeah uh, i beat greg peterson Wow. Uh, the Assassins, uh, managed by Rip Tyler, beat Charlie Cook and Robert Gibson. And manager Rip Tyler was the difference. 
and they got some real good heat in this match. I watched this match, and uh, and I was really, really happy to see what happened uh, watching this crowd. And then David Schultz went out and did something that was the least expected probably of anything. He beat Bob Armstrong for the Gulf Coast Championship. Wow. He had a little help from me, maybe. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but he won the belt. And uh, wow, and these two back to back heel wins started this territory in the right direction, man. Wow, do you re do you remember? Was this one of David's first title title reigns? Period. Yeah. In his yeah. wow, it might have been the first belt David Schultz ever won. Wow, okay, you and know? so that happened in Dothan, Alabama. Yes, wow, okay, all right. And I also want to mention because I saw him wrestle so many times, Greg Peterson. I saw him wrestle so many times, and when he would come down the aisle, there would be there would be thin little country boys that were taller than Greg Peterson as he was headed to the ring. So I mean, some of these some of these little skinny country boys out there that were that were five seven or five eight or and and if they were standing in front of him, you couldn't see Greg Peterson. But he he really was quite the athlete. And it didn't matter how tall he was. So oh, uh, he had a lot yeah. of heart, man. Uh, you yeah. know, yeah. Uh, he wrestled for my father. Yeah. Uh, starting in the fifties down there yeah. in the Gulf Coast territory. Yeah. Uh, he went to Memphis with my dad. He went to Arizona with my dad. He yeah. went to Atlanta with my dad. Uh, <laughs> he was a he was a fixture <laughs> and a uh, a role model for me. Yeah, and, uh, and people growing up. Yeah, people in, in the Dothan areas I remember automatically loved him because they're thinking that guy's only five five and he's walking in there in this case with a guy six nine and and he didn't care. He looked right up at you and he was ready to take you on. So I th that was one of the amazing things about and what really made him such a gifted athlete. And he really was good. Okay, so attendance. How, how about attendance for that night? Well, uh, you know, uh, the attendance was down again. This is the third show. It was a big night with the biggest night so far with Andre. It went down a little bit uh, to uh, 300 or so to 1,100 uh, the week before. And uh, on this one, it went down 200 more people to about 900. So, again, you know, as the name of this stud cast indi indicates, you know, I was really asking myself, am I in way over my head here, man? You know, uh, I was concerned, <laughs> very concerned. But but I just said, uh, you know, but as I just said, uh, you know, when the Heels won the last two matches on mm -hmm. this card <laughs> and Schultz stole that Gulf Coast belt from Bob Armstrong, a couple of fans got out of their seats uh -huh. and they tried to block his way back to the dressing room. Uh -huh. And when that happened, Dave, I could see a little light in the future. <laughs> it's been such a loaded show. I can't believe we still have a little time, but we do. For the learning tree question, you mentioned it earlier, Ron. Mr. Jack Flowers asked, what was the relationship between Booker and owner when it came to decisions such as hiring and firing talent, pay guarantees, angles, title changes, I guess you would say, world title shots, or positions on card placement? That's that's a lot, but how did? what about that? Well, that, that's a very interesting question, Mr. Flowers, and I'm sure a lot of people uh, are going to want to hear the answer to this one. Uh, so let's start with the obvious part about this. And, uh, 
And I think the, the important part of this is, is the question of just what was the relationship between owners and bookers all about, you know? So, it, and, and it was all about, to me, one word, trust. And, and you didn't have to like your booker, but you certainly needed to be able to trust him. And, and I really know this, uh, Dave, wow, from, from my experience, uh, uh, read anything you want to about the Knoxville Wrestling War of 1979, mm -hmm. and you're going to know why I say trust is, is critical between owner and booker. Yeah. Uh, and, and it also helped if you were at least friends with your booker, you know, there had to be a good line of communication, whatever. You know, between it had to happen between owner and booker for that relationship to last. So some bookers were so good at their job, they could keep it even if they disliked the owner and vice versa. Didn't make any difference. They were doing such a good job. The owner ain't going to let them go. A booker's success was always easy to assess. It was easy, quick to tell how a booker was doing. All you had to do was go outside the dressing room and look at the crowd. And uh, consistent sellouts versus empty buildings kept your job as a booker under almost any circumstances. You weren't going to get fired. So, Mr. Flowers, uh, let's break down each of those categories you asked about in your question and then see if the owner or the booker, which had the responsibilities for each of those. So hiring and firing talent was your first question. Who's responsible for that? And the booker always had the most to say about this. If the owner tied his booker's hands and told him what wrestlers you can hire and what you can't, then uh, he, he made the decision. And, and if the owner made the decision about the talent, then if the booker failed, who could he, how could he blame the booker? He didn't give him an opportunity. So the hmm. booker was responsible for the hiring and the firing and the talent. Uh, pay guarantees, I think it was the next that you asked about on your list. Uh, mm -hmm. That one fell squarely in the owner's lap. The booker never paid a penny for talent. Mm -hmm. It wasn't his responsibility. And he could only hope his crew was going to get properly paid by the owner. But uh, guarantees were rare back in those days. And uh, definitely on the owner's side of the business, you know, uh, the, you know, that part of it was definitely on the owner's side of the business for sure. So angles obviously were a booker's responsibility. Uh, but if an owner had an idea and he came to the booker and he asked him if, if he what he thought about it and would he use it, it was probably something the booker ought to do, you know, uh, simply because the owner didn't just pay the boys. He paid the booker. Right? <laughs> so if the owner's got an idea and you're the booker, uh, you're not a smart dude if you say, no, I don't think we're going to do that. <laughs> Uh, so the next was title changes. I think that's what he asked about title changes. And again, it's the same as angles. So, you know, that, that was, it was a booker's job and it affected his success. If he couldn't uh, be the, the guy to, to say when titles should change. And if an owner limited him on this, uh, he couldn't blame him later if the booker failed. So world title shots next on your list, uh, the owner, did have a say in this, especially if he was a member of the National Wrestling Alliance. Mm -hmm. The owner was solely responsible for the NWA champion uh, when he came to your territory and everything you did with him. So, uh, the, you know, uh, that wasn't uh, for a booker 
the good, to have the the leeway to handle that. It was an owner's responsibility hmm. to know what's going to happen with the champion. Wow. The last, I think, was about positions and card placements. And again, that was totally a booker's responsibility simply because his job depended upon it. And again, the owner couldn't blame the booker for failing. If he denied him that call as to where this guy is going to be on the card, uh, if he if he if he dealt with any type of that and got in the way of the booker, he's not a smart guy, and uh, and he could never come back if the booker failed and he did some of those things, and uh, and he was responsible. Then he was responsible in part for that failure. Uh, that's a great question, Mr. Fires, and uh, thank you very much, man, for asking that one. Uh, and uh, and uh, and uh, and uh, we're getting some great questions, man. Some some great learning tree questions, and uh, we're we're going to keep uh, we're going to keep throwing them at you. Oh, uh, without a doubt, you've done it again, stud. Another rocking studcast, absolutely. All right, folks on Facebook, to become friends with the stud on Facebook, simply go to either as Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud, or Ron Fuller Welch author page. You can like and follow him there, and you automatically become friends that way. On Twitter, follow him as Ron Fuller Welch on Twitter. Find everything on Ron's website, tnstud.com. That's tnstud.com. Studcast, super studcast. Historic videos, photo gallery, his stud store with souvenirs of all kinds, autograph photos, tremendous continental DVD wrestling five packs, T-shirts, Tennessee stud mask, and his chilling novel, Brutus. Visit now at tnstud.com. Hey, listen, I'm telling you, after 242 episodes now, plenty to look at at tnstud.com. The Southeastern Rewind YouTube channel has many things as well, but Stud's streaming channel, ClassicContinentalWrestling.com, will have it all. I mean, everything that the Stud has ever produced, it's right there. In the past, in the present, and on into the future, it'll be added to daily for years to come. Three-hour stars of the sport, Andre the Giant and the enforcer, Arn Anderson, are already streaming and available anytime. Cactus Jack, Mankind, Dude Love, and Socko all rolled into Mick Foley. It's going to be there any day. You got to check it out. Don't miss it. And listen, you heard earlier in this studcast what is coming. Don't miss out, fans, on old school's greatest wrestling deal. Stream everything that is the Tennessee stud. ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. Only $4.99 per month, $39.99 per year. Gets it all. Subscribe today and get a free week bonus on your first month. You can also gift your subscription if you like. It's so versatile. Any way you want to do it, we can get you set up. All right, so where do we ride next week, stud? Well, uh, great cards, man. Uh, wow, really great cards next week in both these territories. Southeastern Knoxville has its biggest tag team tournament ever for the held-up Southeastern Tag Belts. Uh, that uh, tournament's going to take place on Sunday, March 19th, 1978. Uh, nine teams are in this tournament, big stars from all over the country. Plus, Robert Fuller is going to be going after the Southeastern Belt of the Mongolian Stomper uh, because of a challenge. 
from gorgeous George Jr. Since Rob's hair was growing out a little bit at this point, uh, Jr. didn't like to see it. And uh, he said, uh, I'll give Rob Fuller a chance at, uh, at my stomper's belt if he'll cut his hair again if he loses. He wanted to shave his head again. Uh, and Rob took him up on it. <laughs> so, so that's on that card next week as well. So Southeastern Gulf Coast, Gulf Coast down there in Dothan. Uh, has the first ever two-ring battle royal in that territory's history on Friday night, March 24th, 1978. And we're going to cover both the TVs, the one in the north, the one in the south, the results of both the cards, and the attendance in both those buildings. And the next learning tree question asks, uh, when a wrestler has a stack of bills, a gold watch, or whatever to offer a bounty or pay one off, does the promoter supply the prize? <laughs> so, uh, you know, got to thank everybody for listening again today, Dave. And uh, please tell your friends about us. Uh, take care of yourselves out there and others as well. And may God bless us all. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud. LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. <laughs>